You're listening to the Overboard Show extended version. Thank you for listening to Super Yacht Radio. Thank you for being with us. We are very fortunate this morning to have uh, Dr. Andrew Lewis call into the studio to talk about Great Coral Sea Project. Have I got Foundation. that right? Well, I was going to say, you me. are a man of, of many hats. Um, not only have you been involved in ecotourism, but you are a very well-known marine biologist, as well as an underwater photographer, I believe, as well as uh, having set up the Coral Sea Foundation and other projects. He's an all-rounder. Good morning, Indeed. Dr. Lewis. Good morning to, Hi, uh, to you both and good morning to all the listeners. Yeah, um, thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a really an honor and a privilege to be, to be invited to be able to come on the show and talk. And um, it's fantastic to be able to get our our message out there so thanks very much for having me on indeed i i have to say just looking at, at everything you're involved with i'm not sure if we're going to pack it into one show i think this might be one that we will need to follow up more of but to start with andy can you give us a little bit about your background i mean you grew up i presume you're I australian did. you're an australian native Absolutely, yes. I, I grew up uh, on the coast and on the sea in Australia. My formative years were in Western Australia, so in Perth. And then uh, when I was 11 years old, my father was moved up to the, the rugged northwest of Western Australia in the Pilbara region where all the world's iron ore comes from. And we had a fantastic life up there for five years. We had a, a power catamaran. There was a huge array of offshore islands. There was only 8,000 people in the town. Uh, as kids, we had motorbikes, we had dinghies, we had sailboards, and we lived a very free free life. Um, I spent the last couple of years of my, of my high school years in Melbourne. My father was transferred there. I didn't particularly like being down in the temperate, cold, big city. And so as soon as I was able to, I made a beeline for Townsville in North Queensland, which is, which is on the Great Barrier Reef. It's the epicentre of tropical marine biology research in the world um, and and that was my calling. I thought, okay, I'm going to go up there and study marine biology. So I, uh, I spent 11 years at James Cook University, went right through the system, uh, an undergraduate degree in, in marine biology and organic chemistry, um, a year spent in the chemistry lab uh, extracting um, potential medicines out of marine organisms. I then changed gears and moved back into the marine biology department. I did an honours on squid and then for my PhD I wanted to address the question of how do the coral reefs of the Great Barrier Reef change through time and how do they respond to disturbance I mean that was the question I was crucially interested in and I'm still interested in to this day and so my PhD research was in the mid 90s and I had a power catamaran again and I did about 250 trips out to the mid-shelf reefs of the Great Barrier Reef uh, over three and a half years, over a thousand hours of diving, and we were able to go back to the same sites week after week, month after month, year after year, and, and observe the changes at all these different timescales. Um, so when I finished that, I finished that body of work, and I then moved more into eco-education and eco-tourism. So I did a lot of work with the um, American Study Abroad Market, with the Australian Private School uh, Teaching Market. Uh, a lot of which uh, we, we use the fantastic Lizard Island Research Station facility in the northern Great Barrier Reef. Um, and so I did that for about a decade. And then I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Craig Howson, the, uh, the owner of True North in 2006. 
Oh, and so we um, spoke with uh, Mark Stoddart yesterday. Was that something to do with Mark? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, Mark and Craig are the co-owners of yes. True North, and True North is a, is an absolutely iconic Australian uh, luxury adventure cruise vessel. Uh, and you know, Craig is is famous for saying this boat is a tool; it's not a jewel. And you know, his <laughs> philosophy was. His, you know, his philosophy was let's put a 50-metre expedition vessel on the water, let's put six tenders on it and a helicopter and go where nobody else has gone yet. It only drew two metres, so uh, I was fortunate enough to, to work on that vessel for 10 years. And so we did a lot of exploring right through northwestern Australia, Indonesia, New Guinea, um, West Papua, Raja Ampat, the Solomons. And, you know, through that I was able to get a very, very good overview of the status of the coral right through that very important coral triangle area, the biodiversity epicenter. I was able to get a very good overview of, of the coral through there. And so, um, you know, a couple of years ago, as I was approaching 50 and I had one of those moments where I was like, okay, Andy, what are you going to do now with this knowledge that you've got, that the experience in maritime operations, in marine biology, in a knowledge of all these areas out there, what really needs to be done at the moment? And the thing that just jumped out at me was that by far now the, the greatest area of very, very good quality coral reef, coral reef that didn't bleach in 2014 or 15 or 16 or 17, um, high biodiversity, especially through this arc of New Guinea and Papua New Guinea and the Solomons, what we call the Eastern Coral Triangle. Um, and I realised that, that that area of reef now has the largest uh, you know, domain of high quality coral reef left in the world. Um, however, there's, there's almost no functioning marine reserves in the area. Um, I mean, in Australia, we have 35% of the Great Barrier Reef in protected areas. Mm -hmm. um, and the science tells us that a protection percentage of between 30 and 50% actually maximises the health of the reef and the return to the fisheries because you get so many big fish building up in the reserve areas, they can put out, you know, many tens times more eggs. So a 30 to 50% marine reserve is sort of really what now we're aiming for to try and give these reefs a chance. And uh, we're just definitely a long way from that target in, in Papua New Guinea and the Solomons. I mean, those countries, they're, they're not wealthy countries. They're developing countries. There's no money for enforcement of marine reserves in those areas. The people are still living a subsistence lifestyle. Um, and so if we want to get these reserves in place and make a difference there, it's crucial that we engage with the local people, get their support and, and get in there and work with them. So that was really when all those threads came together, I thought, okay, we need to start a foundation that has this aim of working through this very special northern arc of the Coral Sea, which includes the Great Barrier Reef, which includes Papua New Guinea and the Solomons and Vanuatu and New Caledonia. Um, we need to have that as our centre of operations, treat the whole thing as a, as a biodiversity unit, um, and get pragmatic and get practical and start getting the work done out there. Um, and so that was the that was the impetus behind setting up the foundation. And that's what we're we're uh, we're trying to do with the skill set that we've got and the and the means and the funding that we've got available. Can can I bring you back just a little bit of, of sure. the importance of coral reefs? I mean, we are a radio station for the supiot industry, which is wholly yep. dependent, really, on on oceans and certainly at the Monaco Yacht Show last year and increasingly in the past year or two, 
sustainability and the health of our oceans has come up hugely. We think of, sure. you know, corals being beautiful and, you know, beautiful diving areas, but they are serve a much bigger purpose to the, to the ocean health. And to the balance as well. That, that's right. I mean, and look, it doesn't matter which category of value that you put on coral reefs, whether you put an economic value on them, whether you put a, a cultural value on them, uh, an aesthetic value on them, a value on them as a super yacht cruising destination, whichever value you put on them, um, it, it, it shows that it would be a terrible loss if, they're, if, they're, if they disappeared or that they became um, so run down that the biodiversity was, was heavily compromised. Instead of going on a reef and seeing 400 species of coral, a coral reef where you only saw three, is not going to have the same impact across any of those metrics of value that we just we just mentioned. So, and I mean the importance. I can't stress enough the importance of coral reefs. They are our canary in the coal mine. Um, you know, if, if if there's been many many occasions in the Earth's history when the ocean has become so acidic or relatively acidic to the point where any animal with a calcium skeleton couldn't survive. I mean, you know, there's documented mass extinction events where where anything with a calcium shell just goes out of the fossil record for 10 or 20 million years. And we know roughly at what point of ocean chemistry that will happen. Uh, and we're heading towards that point. Um, you know, with unrestrained emissions, we, we will actually reach that point sometime in the next, depending on who you are, sometime in the next 100, maybe 200 or 300 years. But we definitely have the capability to push the ocean to the point where everything with a calcium skeleton goes. So not just corals, but crustaceans, oysters, all of the seafood that people like to eat, prawns, lobsters that people love to have on their super yachts, it, all that stuff will be gone. I mean, that's, that's how serious it is. And, and you know, the, the opportunity to do something about that and avoid that point is in our grasp right now. But if we, if we wait another decade or two, we miss it. So, I mean, you know... So if I could just ask, um, because uh, if, you, if you say to somebody, oh, in 100, 200 years, they just won't be there because of the acidic oceans and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. But as you just hinted there, there's got to be a point of no return. And, you know, there's got to be a oh, point is. where when, you, when we get to here, it's too late. And the damage is done. Look, so, what, what, uh, I, what I always say to people, what I always say to people is, imagine the difference. I mean, you, you know, we can use a nautical analogy. Imagine the difference between going along at five knots in your tender, which weighs a few hundred kilos, and then suddenly taking the engine, putting it in reverse, jamming it into reverse. How long would it take you to stop? How many boat lengths? At five knot, at five knots, your tender would stop in about two boat lengths. If you're in your 180 foot super yacht doing five knots and you jam it into reverse it's not unless you shake the mains to bits it's not going to pull up in only two boat lengths it's got an inertia uh, and this is the critical thing that people need to understand when we're talking about a point of no return it's not so much a point of saying okay there's the point of no return the, the thing is is you need to look at what is the inertia in some of these systems that we're setting in train now I mean, for example, the, 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 the melt of the Antarctic ice sheet now is unavoidable for the next five centuries. And that's what the science is showing. That's the weight of inertia in those glaciers. So even if, we stopped, level, everything, no what, if we stopped everything now, yeah, if no we stopped polluting everything and we just went to green energy overnight, the damage yes. is done. 
there's already a lot of damage being done and there's already a lot of change coming. And this is what we're, this is the, the thing that we're trying to get in front of people now and say, you know, we need to be proactive in terms of reacting to the change that's already underway and that is coming in such a way that we preserve the ecosystems which our species depends on. I mean, it's as simple as that. We can't, we can't feed 9 billion people on this planet in 2050 if we have an oceanic ecosystem in collapse. End of story. So, I mean, that's my motivation. Uh, and, and coral reefs are the pinnacle of the marine ecosystem. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the message I drive. That's my motivation. That's my passion. Um, and I stay optimistic about it because I believe that, you know, if you get the message out there to enough people, most people will choose change over total chaos. I don't think anyone wants to talk People will go for change when there's a an option. So, for example, if I'm a super yacht That's owner right. and you say to me, okay, in order to um, affect change, you've got to stop using a combustion engine in your yacht. Now, if I go back 10 years, I'd go, well, that's great. I love the idea, but <laughs> I love my yacht. I'm not going to do not it. I'm going to re-engine my yacht. That's right. Exactly. But today, the, there is an option. Today, you, you, you do see... Electric um, hybrids. Solar you see solar-powered yachts yeah. coming out now We've been doing well. that this week. That's, and and that, is, that is the other thing that we want to be at the forefront of, given, given my background and the background of other people in our team in maritime operations. I mean, that was the question we said. It's, okay, we've got this fantastic area in the Coral Sea. We, we need to preserve it. We want to preserve it for all sorts of reasons it's worth preserving. What is the ultimate vessel that runs on renewable energy that we can put in that area that can do ecotourism and the science and deliver the humanitarian aid and do everything it needs to do up there and do it almost entirely on renewables? And when you consider the renewable energy resource of the Coral Sea, that, that point just jumped and hit us right between the eyes. We, were, we, we just looked and said, you know what? This area is so blessed with renewable energy, it's actually probably the best area in the world to, to put a concept vessel like that on the water. Um, so, I mean, there's so many things lined up with this project for it to happen in this particular area. So, so we work with Mark Stoffard, who you spoke to a couple mm -hmm. of days ago, and we work with a fantastic team uh, of naval architects at uh, 123. 123, yeah. Um, they worked on the uh, White Rabbit. Um, They've worked on White Rabbit. They're, they've got a huge portfolio of, of multi-hull designs, and so it was a great it was a great process because you know they'd never designed anything like what we wanted to do. I mean, no one really had. I mean, we were we were talking about a big, big multi-hull platform that was designed to use the you know there's strong winds throughout the northern Coral Sea in the winter in the trade months where it's not a, you know you don't bob around there and you sip your sipping champagne. It's often blowing 25 to 35 knots. But that wind resource suits a really, really big multi-hole platform. So, so we took the boat right out to 42 metres uh, and we insisted on a two and a half metre tunnel clearance through the middle and our design criteria was we want this thing to cross from Cairns to Papua New Guinea at a, at a cruising speed of 15 to 18 knots, totally running on wind power and regenerating power from the props and wind turbines on the back of the thing as it goes. Uh, and all that being stored as much as can be stored in, in weight efficient battery banks. And what we what we then wanted to do through our through our arc of the Northern Coral Sea, where we're working with our partner villages, getting our marine reserves in place, securing an ecotourism resource for the super yacht community, what we can encourage those people to do 
is to produce coconut oil for us. There's, there's huge coconut plantations through a lot of that area that were planted just after the Second World War by the Germans and by the English colonialists. Uh, and coconut oil uh, is the best substrate for biodiesel um, hmm. that you can find anywhere in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it, it produces a biodiesel with a narrower molecular range than what you get out of the pump. So our vision is to have this, have this vessel pull up at the village. The local people sell their coconut oil to us. It gives them a sustainable industry. We run it through our hybrid system on the boat. It goes through our gensets. We turn it, or we turn it into biodiesel on the ship. So the ship is a floating uh, you know, coconut oil to biodiesel uh, conversion plant as well. We turn it into, into fuel there. So we, you know, we tap all the, the naturally available renewable energy resources in that area and we show how it can be done in an innovative way uh, and, you know, use that platform to power the marine science, the ecotourism. You know, that, that's our vision. We, 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 have a, we have a vessel vision to match the, the sort of the ecological vision of why it's important um, to get these risks protected. Is it possible to take that? I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about cars. And, um, yeah. you know, for, for centuries or for uh, over a century, we've relied on combustion vehicles, uh, burning petrol, fuel, uh, diesel, whatever. Yeah. And I, I'm reminded of, actually, I was speaking with Maeve yesterday about, uh, was it Prince Harry who married mm -hmm. Meghan Merkel? We also put up about the, a, a new the, car from um, uh, Italy where yeah. it, it's, well, it's an electric car. Well, I'm thinking of, of, of Prince Harry when he married Meghan Merkle. Um, after their wedding at, and the reception at Windsor Castle, they drove away in a 1960s E-type Jag. But mm. it was a conversion. So what they'd done is they'd taken the, the original Jag and they'd converted it into an electric car. And one, yeah. of the, one of the things with uh, super yachts is, yes, we're seeing this huge move towards hybrid engines on super yachts, uh, solar-driven super yachts, and uh, looking towards the more eco side of it. But we're still left with a, a huge amount of the legacy combustion engine yachts. And one of, I think one of the, the problems is looking to the future, these yachts, they, they last for decades. They, you know, you don't throw away a super yacht. You refit it. Oh, no, absolutely. You, you, just, you just repower it. You repower it. And, exactly. I mean, combustion engines are fine. They're, they're fine. You just don't burn fossil fuels in them. You burn hydrogen in them. Or, you, you know, you, you, I mean, hydrogen is the big one, you know, or, or a, a biofuel that can be produced in a way that doesn't damage the environment. But, I mean, there's, there's, there's huge potential. So, in hydrogen engines for these for these yachts and then you just repower them and, and then these things as you say but i mean i think getting back to your, your your former point the super yacht community and the owners of the super yachts the you know the people that have an interest in philanthropy and the development of all this stuff they have a, a super crucial role to play because they have the funds to be able to put some of these really innovative things on their yacht and test them. I mean, like they did with White Rabbit. I mean, the hybrid drives that they put on White Rabbit. I mean, they're, um, it, you know, I, to my mind, I see, I see the, the super yacht industry as, as being the absolute innovators in terms of, of how we drive this stuff forward. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see the, you know, the, the marriage between what they're doing with these huge, big racing trimarans now yeah. um, and what the super yacht industry is doing with its moving towards hybrid drives. I mean, 
you build a multi-hull big enough and light enough, um, it'll go anywhere at 15 to 20 knots, you know, and it'll make power as it goes. It's just it's just about getting innovative about the ways we think so, uh, about travelling around on the sea. Can I ask you, you mentioned the use sure. of coconut oil, you know, which mm. is, is in some ways here in the Med, it, it, in the past couple of years, we see it on the shelves, you know, it's the... Mm. You know, we use it for everything. We're market for it now, for all sorts of things. Exactly. And, you know, it's great for your hair, your skin, for cooking, whatever. Mm. I actually have never oh, thought getting, of they're it. They're getting $2 a litre. They're getting, they're getting two US dollars a litre for it in the, you know, out in the islands. I mean, it's. it's yeah, and we, we pay we five sure bucks a for a tiny jar, you know. But. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, we have to make sure we have a good relationship with the partner villages so they sell us their coconut oil and don't just sell it straight to town for it to be used in cosmetics. So, I mean, it's, it's important to develop those connections. But also, I, I think it's an interesting point of looking at biofuels, new biofuels that are abundant, that don't necessarily harm the the environment, and, and algae. switching algae. from petrol-based to... Algae. So, yeah, where, where do you yeah. see bio, biofuels? Because that's going to be a very big part of, of how we propel our our future vessels coconut yeah, look, oil and, and would be most, one so bring it back to the bring it back to the most fundamental the fundamental chemistry we're capturing energy from the sun in a chemical reaction inside a plant cell um, turning it into a molecule that we can then probably undergo some sort of other reaction with and then use it as a as a fuel in a combustion engine um, the 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 plant the type of plant that has the highest rate of growth in other words, can, is the most efficient at converting that sunlight into the fuel is microalgae. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I'm not an expert in microalgae, but I know there's a huge amount of interest and investment in microalgae now, not only as a standalone thing that sits there doing its thing in the sun and, you you know, you manipulate its, its, uh, its water conditions and its um, nutrient level and everything in the water to maximise its growth. You're probably only using one species, like a monoculture, um, all the way through to all the technology that can now be retrofitted on, on power plants to, to suck the CO2 out of the power plant emissions and turn it straight back into a biofuel. So there's, there's a lot of potential. And, I mean, all this stuff just needs innovation, you know. It needs people to – and that's happening. It's, it's great. It's happening now. And I think, I think now that we've passed, passed that price point, just the simple price point of electricity that it's now cheapest to generate it with a solar panel or above any other way to generate it, I mean, that, that's now the game change because that just drives the market. The market's going to run with it now. Yeah, I think te Tesla, um, have, and, uh, sorry, Tesla recently yeah, um, announced a, a huge innovation from a, a, a price perspective on um, a solar panel that they're looking at the domestic market and uh, using the solar panels instead of normal tiling um, as roof tiles. Roof tiles. Yeah. What, I, what I did want to ask you, you mentioned earlier on one, one of the potential fuel sources being hydrogen. Mm. I've read mm. a lot lately about um, hydrogen battery cells and yes. using hydrogen to store energy. But I, 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 I recall successful uh, experiments and, and innovation in extracting hydrogen from seawater using radio waves. 
Um, really? Actually, I have heard of, I mean, I hadn't heard of that. I mean, the main way that you do it is is obviously just apply an electric current across the water, and it splits the molecule. But um, yeah. no, that's. I mean, that's it. It's it's uh, it, that's certainly. It was um, an innovation. But, developed. I mean, the other big innovation. You go ahead. Sorry, it was an innovation. It was actually originally developed by uh, Nikola Tesla, way back in the nineteen thirties mm. or forties, and. Um, uh, recent, recently, uh, some scientists have have started experimenting again with it, and by exposing yeah. seawater to a particular radio frequency, basically it, it split the molecules, and so you got the oxygen and hydrogen separating, and then they they yeah. were looking at using the hydrogen from that as a as a fuel source as a an alternative to combustion engines. Uh, obviously, yeah. you haven't heard of that that particular one, but. Is, is hydrogen a, a viable alternative, do you think? Look, I mean, the big, the big innovation that happened in Australia a couple of years ago and sort of almost went unreported, and I mean, I think it's one of the most game-changing innovations that any country's ever come up with, and was the, the, the development of a chemical process, a catalytic process, to, to produce the hydrogen, so just through simple, you know, have a, you have a solar collector that can apply a potential difference across water, split the molecule, get the hydrogen. They then came up with a, a, an efficient way to turn that hydrogen into ammonia, which is a much denser molecule. It's a much safer thing to transport. It can be liquefied. I mean, hydrogen, the problem with hydrogen, it's a great fuel, burns really well in an engine, produces no pollutants, but it's just, it's difficult to handle. You know, you need to compress it. Uh, it's explosive, um, you know, there's there's those problems with it. If you can convert it to ammonia, transport it as ammonia, and then you have the technology to turn the ammonia back into hydrogen at the other end and then reuse it through your hydrogen cell, um, you know, that, that solves one of the biggest problems in, in that area. I mean, that's and that's that's an Australian technology. I mean, and, you know, my my feeling is, particularly here in Australia, we should be a world, you know, a world leader, a, a renewable energy superpower in all this stuff. I and mean, we're so blessed with renewable energy down here. And sunshine. Um, and I think, well, like sunshine galore. I mean, too much sunshine. Almost. <laughs> uh, and we've we've got a lot of we've got a lot of degraded farmland out in the inside of the country that it's been cleared. The salinity tables risen with the increasing uh, number of heat waves and things we're getting. It becomes very hard to farm out there. You know, why not cover it in solar panels? Why not be producing so much energy that we can export it to our near neighbours as uh, liquid ammonia, use all our LNG export facilities with some modification? I mean, you know, there's so much stuff that can be done. Um, and I think it's, I mean, that's one of the things that we're sort of really excited about being at is, is at the forefront of all this renewable energy uh, innovation. Um, you know, I mean, I see it as, and others have said the same thing, the point that we're at now is like where we were when the horse industry was replaced by the motor car industry, you know, mm-hmm. that we'd had horses for a long time. There was lots of businesses that fed horses and made horse saddles and shoes and, and suddenly, bang, the motor car came in and it just changed, collapsed. And if you were in the horse business, sorry to say, you went broke. But if you suddenly turned around and went, okay, there's a motor car business starting up here, I can sell tires or motor cars or fuel, or suddenly there was a whole lot of new industry sprung up. And that's at the point, that's the point we're at right now with this transition to renewable energy. I mean, the science is emphatic now, we need to do it. Uh, the market and the price point now is is emphatic that it's the cheapest way to do it. Governments are getting behind it. And, you know, we really want to position ourselves at the forefront of that wave and go, okay, wow, all right, let's let's apply that to a 
you know, a, a super sexy, super exciting expedition research vessel that blasts around the coral sea, saving the best reefs in the world. Let's do it all with renewable energy. I mean, that's our but you, that's you also, the core of our. Vision. You also had companies like Bristol, who were carriage makers mm. for the horse-drawn carriages, who saw the change yes. and who embraced it and went, okay, let's change. We still make carriages. We'll just put an engine yep. in them. And um, yep. I don't know if you know Bristol cars, but wow, they were magnificent. So can yeah. I ask, uh, you set up, I, I believe well, in 2016, um, the mm. Carl C. Foundation. Hey, it's back to Carl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just because <laughs> we could carry on chatting just about th this, but I would like to touch on, you know, your two of your big projects, one being the Carl C. Foundation. Sure. And yeah. um, the focus, I presume, was in looking at, at reef conservation and how you can bring ecotourism and investment and money into preserving these these reefs that's right that's right um and so as i said before the the crucial thing in in dealing with melanesia i mean in dealing with this great big arc of melanesian islands that just sit up to australia's north um it's it's it belongs to the melanesian people they've been there for at least ten thousand years it's the the depth of connection uh, and culture that they've got with these islands is just, it's staggering. I mean, I've been going up there now for, for over 15 years and I'm still blown away by the, you know, the depth of connection that these people have to country and, you know, family trees that just don't just go back, you know, to the time of Christ, but they go back 10,000 years. Um, that, that if you want to get, if you want to get this essential reef protection in place, and it's, it's essential for those people too, because the, the populations there are rising really quick. I mean, to give you an example, the population of Papua New Guinea went from 2 million people in the late 60s to 4 million people in the mid 80s. Uh, it's now 8 million people um, and it's it's scheduled to be, so it's quadrupled from the late 60s to now uh, and it's scheduled to be 20 million people um, by, you know, the mid 2025s or 2030. Can, so can I ask, most uh, of these people live out... Sure. Sorry, could I ask Andy, because I, I, we'll post this up actually. There's a website, thescubadiverlife.com forward slash seawomen of Melanesia, which I found a, a, an incredibly interesting article where it describes the, the cultural side of the people of this area where uh, girls tend to get married very young in their late teenage years and by their early 20s they've got children and they they rely on marine life for food and so the, yes. there's um overfishing in the area you know out of necessity That's but right. because of the overfishing it's driving away the predator fish and so what they're catching now are, are you know much smaller fish the, the population explosion is that an indigenous explosion of population because of the, this cultural uh, side or is this explosion in in population because of foreigners coming to to relocate in Papua New Guinea and and surrounding areas oh no it's it's uh it's uh, an inherent increase in the 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 population of Papua New Guinea itself of the indigenous um, people and of the indigenous people yeah like many developing countries all around the world and so this is this is why we found we we said okay it's crucially important to focus on the women here and training the women there's there's a huge body of evidence which shows that if you educate 
women and girls in developing countries, you achieve a whole slew of positive benefits in one go. First of all, the birth rate comes down. Secondly, infant mortality rates and mortality rates of mothers come down. Generally, everybody's health improves across the whole community. Um, rates of domestic violence come down as soon as women and girls are educated. Um, the number of small business startups increases. Uh, it, it produces a whole slew of positive benefits. And, and, you know, from the point of view of our, our um, drive to protect the reefs, one of the really important things that happens is if women are educated and involved in the decision-making process, better decisions tend to get made about the use of natural resources than they do if women are marginalised or excluded. Um, and so that, that, that uh, philosophy underpins um, the program. Uh, and the program itself was, was actually stimulated by a conversation I had with, with a young woman in the rainforest on Ferguson Island in the middle of the jungle of Papua New Guinea. And this was when I was working with, with the guys at True North and we were coming to a village that we had been to already coming back to for six years, sometimes multiple times in one year. So we had a great connection with people in that village. We, we had saved the life of a, of a mother that was about to go into labour and deliver a baby, uh, a breech baby, and she would have died and the baby would have died. We helped that family get to medical aid or, or True North helped and Craig helped and Captain Gav Graham. Uh, we helped that woman get to medical aid. She delivered the baby. The baby was named after Captain Gavin in honour of, of the help that we'd given. So we turn up at this village I hope it was a boy baby, not a girl baby. <laughs> it was. It was Gavin Jr. <laughs> anyway, a girl named Gavin. <laughs> yeah. So we turn up at this fantastic village, you know, in the jungle of Ferguson Island at five o'clock in the morning to trek in and see this very special endemic bird of paradise. And it's something that we've done for six years. Uh, as we pull up, the people come out of the village, the kids all come out, the dogs come out, a huge procession of people goes into the jungle, we see the bird, we come back out. This morning we arrive and nobody comes out, no dogs, no kids, no nothing. And I'd never seen it happen before and I was, I was worried. I was like, oh my God, what's happened? Has there been a massacre? Has there been an epidemic? Has there been a tsunami? You never know in these places. Anyway, we come into the village and it's, it's in the early morning light. And as we get there, there's a noise. And I suddenly look and there's a great big flat screen TV had been tied up to a tree. There was a generator running, running a DVD player, a flat screen TV. The whole village was sitting around mesmerized by, uh, you know, a Disney animation. Oh, God. And I was just staggered. I mean, this is, a, this, is a village, this is a village with no electricity, with, you know, still babies dying of malaria, uh, people with very, very few possessions. I was just, I said, where did you guys get this? And they said, oh, the logging company bought it for us. And I said, what logging company? And they said, oh, no, the, the you know, an Indonesian logging company has arrived or a Malaysian logging company. They've, they've come in and they're going to start cutting logs and, oh. and they've, they've um, you know, how fantastic they've bought us a flat screen TV. And my heart just sank because, um, you know, I mean, uh, I think it's well known now the damage that, that logging does right throughout Melanesia, through the Solomons, through New Guinea. Um, it's, it's not done in a particularly sustainable way. Uh, in many cases, the local people aren't paid properly. Um, deals are done with people. Logs are taken. Yeah. Total number of logs aren't reported. Uh, the that, first... You know, the whole thing. Anyway, my heart sank. And I said, is anyone going to come and take us in to see this bird? And nobody moved. Nobody even wanted to get up and come and see their endemic bird of paradise. So I was just heartbroken. I started walking with all my guests in through the jungle with my GPS, hoping I remembered how to find this bird in the middle of this trackless jungle. 
and suddenly a young woman comes out from a sidetrack and she says, my name's Laurie Pipiga. My grandfather, Billy Pipiga, owned all this land. This is my land. It's my matrilineal land. I will take you in to show you this bird. And I said, thank you, Laurie. That's fantastic. So we were walking in to see the bird. And I said to her, what are you doing? Are you still at school? And she said, yes, I'm, in, I'm just about to do year 12. And I said, well, that's fantastic. And I said, what do you want to do after that? Do you want to go to university? And, and she stopped in the truck and looked at me with these fiery black eyes. And she said, I want to study biology so that I can stop people like these loggers coming in and destroying the natural environment of my land. I just, I was, I just stopped in the truck and said, right on, I'm going to help you do that. And so she became the first she became the first one through our, through our Sea Women of Melanesia trainee system. Um, and so we brought her to Australia. We got her a visa. We got her a passport. We brought her down to Australia and we, we put her right through her dive course, right through to the end of Dive Master. And she was just a total natural underwater. I mean, you know, all these people up there, they grow up in the jungle. They go up swimming on the reef. Their natural knowledge of the ecosystems is phenomenal. Um, we trained her to dive, we trained her to survey fish and coral, and we sent her back into her home area to speak in local language to all of the, you know, the, the, just the subsistence farming and fishing people that live along that coast and just explain to them, look, you will actually catch more fish if you set aside one third of your reef as a reserve and you let the fish get big. Just like, you know, you reseed your garden, mm -hmm. it's important to let the ocean reseed itself with eggs from these bigger fish. And she was able to project that message in local language. And the people said, that sounds good, we're interested, but we want to see this Dr. Andy come <laughs> back up here and show us that he's committed as well. And, and, and they knew me. I mean, I'd been coming to this village for, for um, you know, at this stage, six or seven years. So I was quite well known as the guy that the biologist that took the bird walk and did the silly dance on the beach at the end of the thing <laughs> and the whole, the whole bit. <laughs> so they said, we want to see Dr. Andy come back. And I said, okay, let's, let's mount an expedition. This will, be, this will be the first major Coral Sea Foundation expedition. Let's put it together. And we did the whole thing for about $7,000. We hired a longboat, a 23-foot longboat. We did it in Ireland style. Well, I entrusted my life to a 40-horsepower Mariner engine and two um, boat operators from the Trobian Islands that knew all these reefs like the back of their hand in the dark, 400 litres of fuel, and out we went, 150 k's out to Ferguson Island, arrived there and the local people said, Dr. Andy, here's your house. We've built you a house, two bedrooms, a living room, all native materials on the edge of the rainforest with a waterfall in the background coming out of the jungle, the Solomon Sea in front. And, you know, I nearly burst into tears. I just said, you people, you've got nothing, absolutely nothing, and you build me a house. So we had the meetings. Um, it was a fantastic opportunity for all those local people to talk. And we had grown men in tears saying, we realise now that we haven't been doing the right thing by our reefs. We've all seen the fish catches going down. We, we can see that our kids aren't going to have fish to eat at the rate that it's going. Um, and they just, they, they just said, thank you so much for coming. They said, you're the first outsider that's ever shown any interest in our well-being and in our food and our reefs and our livelihood. And you've come and lived with us and sat on the ground under the trees with the dogs and talked about the reef. Um, you've learnt a bit of the local language. Because you've done that, we're going we're gonna to set aside, we're going to nominate these reefs and set aside these reefs. And I said, good on you guys, straight into the longboat with a GPS. All you senior landowners, we had five groups of them. We said, straight into the longboat now, let's strike while the iron's hot. 
out there with a GPS and in two hours we had mapped all these reefs and they knew, each landowner knew which bit he wanted to nominate and, and it was good because all the other ones could then see which, you know, which bit Michael had nominated and which bit uh, Aristocco had nominated and so forth. We mapped it all, photographed it all and, you know, the day after I swam over this reef and this was a reef I'd been coming to for, for you know, now getting on 10 years, some of the best coral I've ever seen anywhere in the world. You know, all of my life traveling around doing marine biology, you know, this area has some of the best reef. And I just thought, my goodness, these guys, for the sake of 7,000 bucks and me coming out here and living with them, they've agreed to now put some of the best coral reef in the world in a marine reserve. And I, I just thought, that's it. This is, this is what we need to do. We just need to do this now in 10 or 20 more places through this area, get this boat going, keep training these women, Get raise more awareness about the thing and what we're doing, and you know, so that's been the that's been the path that we're pushing. Tell me, Andy, because we're, we're we're coming close to the top of the hour. We've got about eight minutes, and, sure. and uh, we could happily ahead. talk for another hour. Um, yeah, t- two things. One is, I take it we're okay Happy to come back and do phase two. I, I would love you to come back and do phase two. We well, will take you up on that. So, so the first thing is, um, and get some questions from the you know get some questions from the audience. Yeah. Well, we're we're okay to uh, to to borrow the house in Papua New Guinea for for a little <laughs> holiday. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Absolutely. What uh, what do you need? What what can the super yacht industry do to help this endeavour? Look, there's lots of things that they can do. Firstly, a super yacht visiting these areas is is hugely important. It's very prestigious for the local people. Um, the yacht can come in and it's a means of getting the really essential materials into these places. You know, when I say to those local people, what do you need? They say, we just need fresh water. We need a water tank. We're walking a kilometre into the bush every day, the women are, to get the water. I said, okay, what else do you need? They said, we've got no medical supplies in the village at all, not even a Band-Aid, not even a tweezer. You know, kids get a cut on their leg, it just sits festering until the kid's leg either falls off or the wound heals. Um, Just some Band-Aids and bandages. And they said something for our schools. So, um, you know, those, those key humanitarian things, water, medical, education, can be most effectively delivered by an expedition vessel, a super yacht. So, and the super yacht leaves no trace. It comes in, it interacts with the local people, it helps them, um, it, it gets benefit from seeing the reefs, the, the, the people get some benefit from having the yacht come there, both material and, you know, it's, if, if it's properly ma- managed, money can be helpful, but in many cases, it actually causes division and fights because if, if it doesn't get sh- fairly shared around, then it can cause conflict. So it's very important to, to make sure that the things that get de- delivered are things that will be absolutely 100% used for the benefit of people in the village and, and make sure that it goes to the right people. So the super yacht industry can, can, can help by visiting. In terms of how they can help the Coral Sea Foundation, we need, we need vessels, a vessel, multiple vessels out there to do this work. Um, you, know, our, our, you know, our priority and our goal this year is to put our first multi-hull on the water. And we obviously, to build a 42-metre one uh, with all this fancy renewable energy technology on it, it's going to take time and planning and, and some, some proper partnerships. But we could very, very rapidly, for probably... $200,000 US, we could put a, a really good multi-hull on the water this year, get up there and start delivering these programs. And, you know, and, and that, would, that would not only does it help the Coral Sea Foundation, it, it starts to set up um, the, the asset 
for the super yachts to see. I mean, if you know, if you're if you're listening and you're a super yacht owner and you want to see the best reefs in the world, this is where you need to come to now. But you know, you need some expertise to go in there, and you need to know where the places are that have the really good reefs, where the people are looking after them, and where you can help the community. So it's all those sorts of things that that we can provide um, through through the expertise that that we have. I mean, we want to make sure that these places are looked after, the people benefit, people from the outside benefit. Um, the whole world benefits from from seeing that this is a an ecosystem and a resource that we simply must preserve. If we don't preserve it, we've sort of failed our own mission. Um, so for all those reasons, it's uh, it's an important thing to drive forward. I mean, you know, we would, um, you know, our, our ultimate vision is probably a three vessel program. I mean, do the eco tourism expedition boat. I mean, but it would be fantastic to have a Branson or someone like that come in, or an Elon Musk, and say, okay, let's put the the biggest, most cutting edge fastest multi-hull on the water that we possibly can conceive of uh, and have it go around and just deliver the digital content. Just, just let people see what's out there so that they understand, yes, it's there, it's worth preserving. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff that, that can be done and um, that's that's what we're committed to doing and, and moving the whole thing forward this year. And, and you, you mentioned water. I mean, we're talking about a rainforest. Uh, surely they've got fresh water. Yes. They've got fresh water, they have, but but if the village is right next to a freshwater stream, fantastic, and they'd only have to walk 10 metres and they've got fresh water. Okay. But if the village is some distance from it, someone has to walk there every day yeah. uh, and bring it back, and, and that takes up a big chunk of time. There's plenty of rain. I mean, a, a rainwater tank solves that problem in one go. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that was the first things we got into this village. I, I said to them, okay, thanks so much. What do you guys need? Medical aid, water, education. Okay, let's do it. Rainwater tanks went up there, up there with our partners at um, the Conflict Islands Conservation Initiative, which is just to the to the southeast of uh, the area where we were working. So they they've been really a great support. They've helped train our women. Um, they delivered water tanks for us. Some of the local people took water tanks back up on the trading vessels. Um, we've got fantastic partners in Australia from Solutions for Health that provide medicinal oil of oregano so we were able to get multiple shipments of medicinal oil of oregano into these villages which is an amazing natural antibiotic um so you know we we, we started delivering all that stuff straight away and it's important to make sure that the people see that that benefit is coming in because then they have that incentive to go okay yeah we're not going to fish that bit because it's in our best interest not to now that's what we need to create in the in the local people and if somebody wants to get involved and they want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Besides that you can always, of course, through. come to the station and we'll put you in contact, but if they want to make direct contact. Yeah, just straight in through, in, straight in through the Coral Sea Foundation uh, website is easy. There's email on there, coralseafoundation.net. Um, we've got social media happening on all the major channels, so... Um, if anyone wants to get in touch, just come in through there, send me an email, andy at coralseafoundation.net, and um, let's, um, let's have a conversation. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. It was fascinating talking to you today. Inspiring. That was going to be my next word, inspiring, of the difference one person can make when they get out there. So um, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it's having you. I'd yeah, I will definitely have you back to talk more about this because there was not enough time in this hour to actually yeah. ask you everything about it. Well, well um, yeah, what, no, uh, that's if, right. And there's a fantastic 
There's a fantastic visual side to it as well. I mean, part of telling this story, uh, as and, you know, you touched on initially, my role as an underwater photographer and videographer. Yeah. I mean, part of the tools we need to use to tell this story are all the digital media that we have at our fingertips now, and that you know that's really part of our our vision and and what we can offer a partner is say, hey, we're going to make sure you maximise your your exposure in terms of your credibility and being involved with this project. We're, you know, we're, we're good at doing that. We know how to do that. So, Banner, Andy, you know, I'm, really. I'm, I'm going to have to cut you short because the news is about to hit us, but stay with us. So oh, yeah, we, we need some news. information from you. And, We've been um, talking sure. with Dr. Andy Lewis, Carl C. Foundation. Please stay tuned.